You know, sometimes I'd like to just stop and step back a little bit. And uh, I've kind of been doing that this week, just just sort of uh, <laughs> uninvited and, and just unconsciously. Stepping back after 12 years, um, 12 and a half years now, um, working with the effect and with recovery, and it's like, what is the main purpose? What is our reason to be? What are we doing here? And I was thinking about that this week, and uh, Marion and I actually had a conversation about it. And if you strip it all down to its most basic terms, what are we doing here at The Effect? We're trying to reintroduce people to Jesus. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. We're trying to kind of unveil this first century Hebrew Jesus, what he meant what he taught, how he lived, as much as we possibly can. In this world of ours, especially in the last, I don't know, 50, 60 years, since World War II, since postmodernism has started to set in, and after several hundred years of, of you know, rational enlightenment, we have moved as a Western culture so much further away from a people who can live spiritually. Everything is in the mind. Everything is, is black and white. Everything is, is accurate or it's not accurate. And as the world looks at Christianity, and now as Christianity looks at itself, and as our youngest generations raised in Christian tradition are looking at their faith, it's not doing so well. It doesn't make sense scientifically, logically, rationally, and it doesn't make common sense, practically speaking, and in terms of the the practices in the church. Does that mean that Jesus is irrelevant? So many people are leaving Jesus in their quest for an authentic spirituality. Do we need to leave Jesus in order to find authentic spirituality? And of course here, I and all of us are resoundingly saying absolutely not. Of course we don't need to leave Jesus. But what we do need to leave is what we think we know about Jesus if we really want to understand who he was and who he is in our lives right now. We're trying to, here at The Effect, meet Jesus again for the first time to uh, plagiarize the title of one of Marcus Borg's book. We want to meet Jesus again for the first time. We want to look at the clues that have been preserved of him in our New Testament scriptures and see if we can understand as best as we can what those first followers would have understood so that we can represent ourselves to a Jesus that speaks with complete common sense, that speaks always with integrity, without contradiction, and always pointing to the love of the Father. That's what we're doing here. And that works in recovery, and that works in, in, in a complete just a, a, a spiritual community and spiritual formation. It works across the board. What we're trying to do is to cut through 2,000 years of PR about Jesus. You know, if you think about it, what we know about Jesus comes more from people telling us what they think of Jesus rather than letting Jesus speak for himself. It's kind of like falling in love with the, uh, the persona of a, of a movie star or, or a TV star. You fall in love with their character, their persona that they project on screen. But who are they really? Who are they really when it comes right down to it? You ever heard the phrase, you know, never meet your heroes? Have you ever heard that before? 
Never meet your heroes because you're going to end up disappointed. (laughs) Who we think they are, who we imagine they are, is very different than who they really are. And what we think we know about Jesus is very different than who he really was as he was walking on this earth. Was I disappointed when I met the real Jesus? Absolutely not. He exceeded my expectations, but in an absolutely different way than I ever expected him to. All of my understandings of Jesus and my expectations were dashed. But what I found was so much greater, so much more, but very different at the same time. So who is the real person? Who is this person? And how in the world are we going to find him? How are we going to do that? Well, one of the things we're going to need to do is we're going to need to avoid the extremes. We have a a romantic notion of Jesus, kind of a Hallmark movie notion of Jesus, if, if you want to go there. You know, he's kind of the original hippie. He's all love and flowers and lights. And, and there's a kind of a sense that anything goes in, in this Jesus because he's our friend. He's our buddy. He's our pal. And then the other side of the spectrum is that there's a legal Jesus. And he is one who is holding us to the letter of the law. He is the one who is demanding obedience. He is the one that is going to be judging us at the end of all things. And there is hellfire and there's brimstone and all. There's that side of it. I was just talking to a woman um, just a couple of days ago, and she she lives uh, far enough away that it would be difficult for her to come here. And she said, I can't find a church. I don't know where to go. She said, I was raised Catholic. My husband was raised Catholic. We've been married 30 years, and we decided maybe we'll go back to the Catholic church. And uh, you know, so they went to the Catholic church, and the first thing you need to do, of course, is go to confession. He hasn't been to the church in a while, so he needs to go to confession. She's been married 30 years to her husband, but this is his second marriage. And so when she talked to the priest and she was confessing all this, he said, well, then you're, in, you're living in sin. You're living in adultery. You have, the first marriage wasn't annulled by the Catholic Church, and so your second marriage is basically unforgiven. And he would not absolve her. He would not give her a penance and let her go. She needed to deal with this. And, of course, for $5,000, you can get an annulment in the Catholic Church. And so she goes to an evangelical church. I said, forget, okay, maybe that's not the place for us anymore. Let's go to an evangelical church. And the evangelicals are tearing down the Catholics because they worship and pray to Mary. And, of course, she says, I don't worship and pray to Mary. I know what that's all about. And so then she was turned off there. And, and, you know, I don't know where to go. This would be a legal Jesus. This would be a legal understanding. This is where the tail starts wagging the dog. So where does Jesus fall between the extremes if we stay in this in this middle place, Jesus, first of all, doesn't abolish the law. He said specifically, I don't abolish the law, but I'm going to fulfill it in a very specific way. I'm going to fulfill it in love. I'm going to fulfill it in common sense. I'm going to fulfill it by internalizing it. And if you will internalize that law with me, have it become written on your heart. Graduate from mere obedience to an external code and Bring the principles so deeply into your spirit that you're just living as God would live, choosing as God would choose, relating and loving as God would relate in complete freedom. This is Jesus going that middle way. He establishes a way that he says is the only way home to his Father. And this way is always a way of descent before there's an ascent on the other side. It's a letting go. It's a selling all of the things that we think we possess 
and then just becoming these humble, vulnerable, connected people that then are lifted up on the other side. And he says, if you will do that, if you will go this way, that is the most difficult thing that you'll ever do, to let go of everything that you think you know and everything that you cling to for support. If you will do this, then you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. What is this truth? What is this truth? What is this nub, this core of Jesus' message? That's what we need to get at. And in a way, I suppose, every message that I give and everything that we do here at The Effect is always focused at that core, at that nub. And of course, it has to do with the good news, and the good news being the love of the Father. But there's a, there's a concept here. There is a reality here to God's love that is so difficult for us to get. It was difficult. I'm still getting it. Let me put it that way. But it was a good 10 years before I even clicked over in being able to embrace love the way Jesus presents it of his Father in a way that has started to actually change my life, change the choices, change my attitudes, because it is so radical a shift. And as I sit here today wanting to try to convey this to you, I'm realizing the impossibility of the task. It's something that I am convinced of. It's something that I have experienced in such a way that it has fundamentally changed the way that I view life and changed the way that I view my purpose and meaning, my, my identity, my relationships. But how do I put that into words? Well, I'll do my best and... I'm hoping that maybe there is something that clicks, something that allows you to grab onto. And as we mentioned last week, we're going to be going through some chapters of the new book that's coming out, Daring to Think Again. And this chapter is called, You Had Me at Hello. All right? And where does that title come from? How many of you remember the movie Jerry Maguire? Okay, a few of you at least. All right, just a quick recap here. Jerry Maguire is a beautiful, young, uh, talented, charismatic um, sports agent. And he works for a large firm that does sports agency. And he is one who is absolutely driven. He's successful. He is always competitive. He wants to stand head and shoulders above the rest of the crowd. He wants to make a difference. He wants to do all these things with the sports. And, of course, he wants to make lots of money while he's doing it. Show me the money, remember? So it's all about that. And then... There's a point at which, as the movie opens, that he's realizing sort of the vacuousness of that, that it it really doesn't hold water. It's not something that you can sustain, and it's no longer giving him a sense of meaning and purpose that he had initially. And so he spends all night writing kind of a manifesto, kind of a, a restatement of his philosophy of life. And I can't remember exactly how, but it gets out there. I don't know if he published it or if it just happened to get out there. And everybody's reading it. And it turns into such a fiasco that he ends up having to leave that firm. And he, and he goes into a tailspin at that point. You know, He had that spark at the beginning, but when it became reality and, it re- and he realized it was incompatible with his life as it was, what does he do now? Well, there's one employee that follows him as a young woman who is a, a single mother, and she was one of, his, uh, one of his assistants. And she goes with him as he leaves this firm, and he starts a new firm. And in true form, he starts all over again. He starts trying to build and make this happen and all these things. But now he has something that he didn't have before. He has this woman in his life. And they become involved, and they get married, and he suddenly finds himself an instant father, 
an instant husband with a home and, and a family that he needs to support. And you see this seesaw start to happen in his life. You see this, this pulling that's happening. He's attracted to home and hearth on one, hand, on one hand and fatherhood, and he's just getting to know this little boy who's just a little doll, right? On the other hand, he still needs to make it, and all of his sense of identity and meaning and purpose is still tied up with his work, and that is pulling him further and further away to the point that the, his wife just realizes there's nothing here for me and my son. And so she reluctantly separates from him and goes to live with her sister. As a separation. And Jerry's life continues to slide and spin and do all the things. And he has this moment of clarity where he realizes what he's lost. And so he wants her back and he wants to try to get her back, but he knows he doesn't deserve her. And he knows that he hasn't done anything to, to win her back. So he goes through this rehearsal in his mind of all the things that he's going to tell her. And he's building up the courage as he's going to his sister-in-law's house to meet her. And there's this great comedic moment when he walks in the door. And they're having some kind of single mothers or single women meeting. And so there's all these single women there. And his wife has gone to the kitchen to get some refreshments. And he walks in and all eyes are on him, right, with this, because they know the situation. And so it's like daggers are coming to him. And so he's feeling very uncomfortable, and then his wife walks in the door, and so he pulls her aside, and he starts in with his rehearsed speech, you know, trying to just weave the spell that's going to bring her back, say exactly the right thing that is going to bring her back into his life. And as he's fumbling and stumbling and trying to get through this with all these women watching, finally his wife mercifully just says, stop, stop, shut up, you know, just stop. You had me at hello. What a line, huh? You had me at hello. There is something that Jerry couldn't understand about love in general. He certainly couldn't understand it about the love that his wife had for him. In Jerry's world, you had to be different. You had to be spectacular. You had to be head and shoulders above everybody else in order to be accepted, in order to be loved, in order to be able to have the respect and the things that you want out of life. And so he worked so hard to be different. He couldn't conceive of a love that existed for him when he didn't deserve it, when he didn't do anything to earn it, when he was at his worst. This love still existed for him? That doesn't compute. And it doesn't compute with most of us He found a love that existed for him no matter what. And it blew open his worldview. You know what Tolstoy said at the beginning of one of his most famous novels, Anna Karenina? He said that happy families are all alike. Unhappy families are each unhappy in their own way. Now I want you to think about that for a second. Is Leo right? Are happy families all alike and unhappy families all unhappy in their own way? Just just think about that for a second. Because it doesn't make sense at first. When we think about the love of a happy family and we think about love that we experience, doesn't it feel different all over the place? How can you say that it's the same? I mean, we can feel affection. We can feel tenderness. We can feel a sense of... um, what would you call it, uh, devotion. 
and, and, and protection over a child. Or we can feel absolutely nothing at all as we're trying to love just the person on the side of the street. Do what's best for what Jesus calls the enemy, the one that we don't understand, the one that we don't get. So if love feels so different in so many ways, how is it that it's also the same? You see, if you think about it, the emotions that we feel about love, the way love feels different, is what we're taking out of a relationship, not what we're putting in. And if what we're putting into a relationship is really love, then that relationship is going to have the same effects that love always has on any relationship. Relationships that are really built on love always look the same because they are based in the same acceptance and trust, respect, loyalty, affection, even civility that a loving relationship always entails. When you walk into a home where there is a happy family, you feel that. You feel that sense of connection. You feel that warmth. You feel like you belong, even if you walked in for the first time. It's a place you enjoy coming. It's a place you want to return to at any time. That is the sameness of love. But at the same time, we are scared to death of sameness, aren't we? If we're the same as everybody else, we equate it culturally with our Western culture as a loss of identity. Who are we if we're the same as everybody else? Don't we have to establish ourselves as independent and different and apart from in order to feel significant? I wanted to read just a passage from the book Daring to Think Again. Culturally, the icon of the tough, unsmiling, tortured loner with an unspeakable but fascinating past, wandering from town to town, righting perceived wrongs, but never forming permanent attachments, has become the ubiquitous fantasy hero. But from Shane to Bond to Batman, the fascination lasts only as long as the pain that drives them in and out of our lives. We want them because we know we can't have them. To smile, to settle down, is to break the spell. To become domesticated, neutered, and as dull as our culture's view of the family man or woman framed in the doorway of tracked homes full of furniture and noisy children. The sameness of love the predictable qualities it creates in people and their relationships actually becomes an object of derision in our culture. An imagined loss of individuality and power, a bore, an intolerable, sterile existence. We cling to the uniqueness of our pain and resist sameness because we fear being lost in the crowd, becoming one of many, one with many unspectacular, without any distinguishing features that aren't ours alone. Better to survive on an island of pain that is ours alone than to drown in a sea of sameness from any other source. Or as Satan declares in Milton's Paradise Lost, it's better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. And if we're honest, we admire that at some level. Or at least we understand. We resist the sameness of a love so powerful that it levels us all removing our imagined identities, our individual and unique notions of ourselves, and replacing them with the identity and predictable and universal qualities of its source, of our God. At the same time, we're drawn to a love like this, like moths to a flame. We long for it as the deepest expression of who we really are as human beings. 
When I met Jesus for the first time in my mid-30s, after studying him from a Christian origins point of view, I was hooked. I was absolutely hooked. I knew I had found a Jesus that I could follow for the rest of my life, but I didn't know why. The why was escaping me. I knew it, but I couldn't consciously express it. That came later, over time. I started to realize more and more that there was one point that Jesus was making over and over again, and that started to sink in. You see, we think that we need to be different to be loved. Above, beyond, better, bigger, whatever. But the truth of Jesus' good news is that God doesn't love us because we're different. God loves us because we're the same. God doesn't love us because we're different. God loves us because we're the same. We think we need to be different to be loved. But God is love. God doesn't do love. He doesn't decide to do it or not do it, withhold or not withhold. God is love. And because he is, as soon as you approach him, you're going to get everything that he is. Jesus says that God's love falls on everyone, like rain, like sunshine, on the righteous and the unrighteous and the just and the unjust. It's indeterminate. It doesn't matter. The love is what it is. It is the same wherever it is present. Y'all know about Stephen Hawking, right? Yeah, Brief History of Time, famous book. He was, he was the guy in the wheelchair with uh, MS and speaking through the computer voice and all. He came up with a theory of the universe that is striking. He said that the universe is finite. That means it doesn't go on forever. But it has no edge. Now figure that out for a second. It's finite, but it has no edge. What is he saying? He's saying if you start out at any point in the universe, here, Earth, right? And you go in any one direction long enough, you will never get to the edge of the universe. The stars aren't going to thin out, and you'll end up in just black space, and you can turn around and look at the ball of the universe. That's never going to happen. Wherever you go, if you go long enough, you'll end up back where you started again. Because there is no space beyond the space of the universe. The universe creates space as it expands. And the whole thing is one huge black hole, if you will. And so it's like traveling on the inside of a ping pong ball. Wherever you go, you'll end up back where you started again. And wherever you look, it'll look the same. Stars will always be at equal density, equal distribution, wherever you go. Up, down, side to side, back to front, doesn't matter. Wherever you go in the universe, it looks the same. And so guess what? Mathematically, every point in the universe is exactly the center of the universe. Because no other point makes any sense. It's meaningless. God's love is exactly the same way. Something that can't be measured always looks the same. God's love can't be measured. It's infinite. Or it's the infinite interior, like our, like our universe. Wherever we go, we are right in the center of God's love. I think it's amazing that God created a universe that mirrors the reality of his love and his presence in our lives. And it also makes this huge statement about the position that we hold in God's heart. Always in the center, exactly in the center, because no other place makes any sense, mathematically, spiritually, or any other way. And this is exactly what Jesus is trying to get across to us. Look what he said at Matthew 22. This is always one of the oddest little sayings of his. 
Starting in verse 23, on that day, some Sadducees, parenthetically, who say there is no resurrection. These were a group that only recognized the first five books of the Bible, what's called the Torah, which doesn't measure mention any resurrection or any afterlife whatsoever. And so they only held to those five books. So they didn't believe in it because it's not mentioned. So the Sadducees come to Jesus and question him, asking, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. So this was actually the law, and it it allowed women to be able to survive if their husband died because they were completely dependent uh, economically on the husband. And so if he died, then the brother would take over, marry her, bring her into his harem, and continue on. And so they're setting up a situation trying to ridicule Jesus because Jesus believes in resurrection and the afterlife, like the Pharisees did. Now he says, now they say, there were seven brothers with us. And the first married and died, having left no children to his wife or brother, also the second, the third, and down to the seventh. So she's married all seven brothers in a row. Last of all, the women died. You know, real serious uh, question here, right? But Jesus said, oh, and so in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. So they set up a ridiculous situation to try to ridicule Jesus. But he answers and says to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry people, neither marry, nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. There is so little information about the afterlife in our scriptures because the Jews didn't consider the afterlife. That wasn't important to them. They focused on this life. But here's just a little glimpse of something in the next life that Jesus throws out there. And look what it's implying. In our relationships in heaven, there are not going to be any degrees of intimacy. There is no need for us to separate off into individual relationships, best friends, spouses, or anything else. Everything will be equally in- intimate to everyone. Everyone's connection will be equally infinite. We will have an infinite number of best friends. And I know, if you're anything like me, this sounds really weird, and I don't like it much, but imagine, if you can, that kind of connection and intimacy with everyone Because what Jesus is trying to get across to us is that the Father's love obliterates our imagined individuality, our imagined uniqueness, our need for exclusive relationships, obliterates it. And you think, well, is that really a good thing? But think about this. At the same time, it also obliterates our imagined loneliness, our apartness, our division, You can't have one without the other. To have equal intimacy is to be equally connected, the same all across. We are all God's best friends, in other words, equally intimate. Jesus says in Matthew 20, starting right at verse 1, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go up into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. 
And again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing idle all day long? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to arrive first. And when those who were hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive much more. But each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give the last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? And so the last shall be first and the first last. I mean, however Jesus slices this, it's completely unfair, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. Wouldn't we be a little bit peeved if we worked all day long and someone who worked an hour got the same pay as we did, regardless of what we agreed to? How can this be fair? It isn't. It's unjust. There is reason for outrage here by our standards, by our standards, by the way that we live our lives, by the way that we understand the way life works. But if somehow, some way, we could be under, begin to understand that this denarius is everything that is, this coin is everything, and everything is already yours, completely filled. You couldn't hold any more than a denarius. And once you experience that reality, then you really don't care anymore who's in the pool with you, do you? If you are so completely filled, if you are so completely connected, and you realize that everything the Father has is already yours, does it matter who's there? In fact, the next person who's there just fills you that much more with the connection. Just trying to conceive of the everythingness of God's love is so hard for us to do. It's absolutely hard to imagine. And that's our problem. That's what Jesus is working so hard to try to get across to us. Again, from the book, we are all God's beloved. We are all God's favorite. We are the center of God's universe because no other position has any meaning. What would our lives be like if we could really trust our place with God? If we knew there was a love that we could always count on the way we've always counted on our misery, a love that would never leave or forsake. We've come a long way from Jesus loves me, this I know. And I realize that many of you may be thinking that this goes too far, that these images in no way describe the love of the God with whom you're familiar. And that's exactly it. They don't describe a familiar God. The problem is not that we we may be describing an unfamiliar God, but that we're always describing God in terms of what's familiar. The problem is not that we ever go too far, but that we can't ever go far enough that there's no human way to go far enough in describing the allness of God's love. It can't be described. It can only be experienced. So we're left describing experiences and not the love itself. 
But the love exists as God exists, always in motion and unaffected by our experiences and always present and waiting for us to turn and embrace it. We get it all and all at once whenever we're ready to accept what it means to be beloved. Now, the question becomes, how do we get this experience? And I suppose this is really the hard part, isn't it? How do we get this experience? Because to accept this perfect love is to first feel the loss. When we first start to accept a love as perfect as God's love, it feels like loss first. And then it feels like gain. It feels like freedom. Because this love levels you out. This love makes you the same as everyone else, erases your imagined differences, superiority, if that is the case. Whatever you think you have, it levels you out and then lifts you up. What did Jesus say? If you want to sit at the head of the table, sit at the foot of the table, because then someone will invite you up. The love is exactly this way. It levels you out and then it lifts you up. But here's the catch. If we're not willing to be leveled, if we're not willing to finally see ourselves as the same as everyone else, then we're never going to be lifted up. And this is what Jesus means when he says, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. This is what he means when he says, pick up your cross daily. Daily? Pick up my cross? Yeah. Paul says, let the old man die. Let that image of yourself that keeps you head and shoulders above, apart, somewhere else than the sameness of all of God's creatures. Let that part die. Pick up your cross daily because it's not going to happen once and you're done with it. Every day you're going to have to rededicate yourself to this proposition that you are one of God's creatures, loved equally and the same. No more, no less. If we're not willing to be leveled, we're not going to be lifted. Jesus is telling this over and over again because he knows full well that it kills our ego to accept that we are the same as everyone else in God's eyes. It kills our ego to think that we aren't loved any differently or any more based on our performance. It kills our ego to know that anything that we can do Anything that we can imagine that we control means nothing to God's love. This is the genius of Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Take a look at what he says here. Right at the very beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, right? The son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities. Now, when we think of vanity in our culture, it means someone who is conceited, someone who is vain, right? Looks stuck in the mirror all the time. This is not the meaning of this word, the way it's used here. It means empty. It means worthless. You know, emptiness of emptiness. Worthlessness of worthlessness. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What advantage does a man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place rises there again, blowing toward the south. 
and then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flows, they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see, this is new? Already it has existed for ages, which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things, and also of the later things which will occur, there will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. It sounds so depressing, doesn't it? But look what he is saying at the end of his life. This is Solomon, David's son, the one who built up Israel to its greatest extent. It was all downhill after Solomon. The greatest extent. Everything that he had, everything that he had built, all the wives, all the concubines, and wisdom itself that was reputed across the world, when he comes to the end of his life and he realizes, I'm going to die like everybody else. No more, no less. This is the wail, the cry of someone whose whole worldview has been blown wide apart. Whose mind has been blown by the realization that everything that he put his hand to was not what it was about. That's just a blowing in the wind. That's just vanity. The loss of everything he worked for his entire life is now emptiness, and he realizes that. And yet, at the same time, the same power, the same love that obliterates all of our achievements, all of our imagined entitlement to love and acceptance because of our achievements, also obliterates our failures and our imperfections. And most importantly, it obliterates our imagined unworthiness to receive this love and acceptance of God. That is the good news. But you can't have one without the other. This is the whole point that Jesus is trying to bring across to us. The whole point of his way, which he says is the only way to father, this contemplative way that we practice here, is about practicing dissent to consciously let go of the things that we're holding on to, the things that keep us illusorily apart from each other, separate from each other. We imagine we need that in order to be loved, but to voluntarily let that go is this way of Jesus, selling everything that we have, give it to the poor, selling everything that we imagine we possess that others do not, and become leveled out, become one with to step aside from these egoic illusions of control. If we can do that, and only if we do that, can we accept a love that will lift us after it levels us. It's the acceptance of the leveling that allows the, the love to raise our boats, but it's going to raise all boats like the tide, not just ours. It's the way this love works. We're all the same. We have to confront that. We have to let that be. Can we do that? One last passage. This love is also, this love of God is nothing to be trifled with. It's not for the faint of heart. 
It tolerates no compromise. It must be swallowed whole all at once or not at all. There is no way to bite off a piece, stick a toe in the water, or slowly turn up the heat. This love requires full extension, full commitment, complete abandon. It will take from us everything we think we are and give us everything God is in return. We can tell ourselves that this is a good trade, but we have to first be empty before we can be filled. And from our side of the deal, before the trade is complete, before we've experienced what unity with God's identity really means, it just looks like death. The death of everything we've worked so hard to build and preserve. A deal breaker for most of us. The elder brother of the prodigal can't believe what he sees his father's doing. Is outraged as the allegiance at the allegiance his father is expressing to one so undeserving. It's not fair. It's not just. It's not fair to him, the one who tried so hard to earn and maintain his place in his father's house. And we can't believe it either. Our behavior, our ability to keep a contract with God means nothing in the face of a love like this. This love is not fair. It's not even just or moral. It's just perfect. And when finally encountered, when we brace for its impact and feel its desperate embrace and hot kisses on our neck, how can we describe what we are beginning to understand? Brendan Manning, borrowing a phrase from G.K. Chesterton, calls it the furious love of God. A love that Chesterton, Chesterton wrote, burned with such heat and passion that he couldn't distinguish it from the fires of hell itself. You see what kind of phrases we're reduced to? How far we have to go to try to get a point across when this love is first experienced or just beginning to be experienced and it's so unlike what we imagined at first. It's so hard for us to accept this leveling of God's love. And Jesus knows that. He said the narrow way to life is, is constricted by this gate and this, this narrow way. And few are going to go that way. He's not talking about heaven and hell. He's talking about this right here. Are you going to be able to finally allow yourself to be leveled out? Most of us are like the elder brother of the prodigal, if we're honest. We feel entitled by the imagined differences from our brother and not the connection to our brother. But it was the younger brother, the broken brother, who was leveled and hollowed out by his life experience and the choices that he made. And because he was leveled and hollowed out, it was he who confronted this mind-blowing change, this mind-blowing love, this worldview-blowing love. Y'all remember the story, right? The younger brother of a father who has two sons asks for his inheritance, and amazingly, he's given it. He goes off into a far country, spends it all, ends up, with the pigs, which is the lowest <laughs> place you can end up in a Hebrew concept, Hebrew worldview. And when he comes to his senses, he says, even the hired hands of my father are, are living better than this. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back home again. But I'm not going to expect that my father is ever going to accept me as a son again. Look what I've done. He knows the whole story, of, uh, the whole rite of Kazaza which was that the people would stand by the gates if, if a returning person would come back who lost all of their wealth, and they would break a clay pot in front of them as a symbol of the broken relationship, and they would not be allowed to pass. They would not be allowed to even come within the city walls. He knew all this. He knew what he was up against. 
But he starts off anyway, rehearsing in his mind the speech that he's going to give his father. I am not worthy to be called your son, but just let me be a hired hand with you, and it'll be enough. It'll be okay. I can accept that. And he's rehearsing it over and over again, stinking of sweat and excrement and all the stuff from the pig's side. And his father on the other side never stopped looking out over the edges of his property, never stopped waiting for his son. Have you ever waited for your children to come back, wondering where they were, with your heart in your throat, wondering, have you ever had that feeling? Yeah, I see some heads going up and down. You know what that feels like. You know that longing. And it never left the father. He was looking for his son every single day. Can you imagine his eyes playing tricks on him and he thinks he's seeing him coming over the rise of his property and then realizing deflatingly it wasn't him. And then one day he sees him coming and he thinks again, my eyes must be playing tricks on me. But he looks and he looks and he realizes it's for real. He's there. The the rush that goes through him at that point. And he bolts for the door. And he's running, the scriptures tell us, to his son. And as many of you have heard me say before, Hebrew patriarchs did not run. It was undignified. And if he was going to run, he had to hike up his robes. And so many of you have loved this image of the white knobby knees flashing as he's running for everything he's worth. Hebrew patriarchs, Hebrews in general, didn't show their skin. That was immodest. And Hebrew patriarchs did not accept back a son who had done what he did to this family. And it doesn't matter. He's running full out, dead run. And the son sees him coming and must have braced for impact because when his father gets there, the scriptures just simply say in their understated way, he embraced him and kissed him. But if you look back in the original Greek and the original Aramaic, you realize that what it's really saying is there, he draped himself around his neck and he could not stop kissing him over and over and over again. You know what this kid smelled like? Do you know what he really represented to the life of that family? Do you know what the elder brother and all the rest of the household and the city were thinking of this father at that moment if they knew what he was doing and what he had already done? But he draped himself around his son's neck and he couldn't stop kissing him. And when the son finally gets a moment and, you know, regain some kind of balance, he begins his rehearsed speech. Father, I am not worthy to be called your son. And before he can even get the words out, the father is off and running and barking orders to everyone around him, ordering the party and the celebration because his son was dead and has now come back to life again. Each one of us is like this. Each one of us believes that we have no reason to expect that our God would call us his son or daughter anymore. And we rehearse all these speeches and we come up with all of these schemes and all of these ways of trying to come back into God's favor, at least his house as a servant, whatever. Just let me eat the crumbs that are coming off the table if I can't sit there. This is our state of life, living in poverty when the feast is all around us. And then we come to our God in prayer or supplication or whenever, and we start our rehearsed speech. God, please, please, please. And it's as if God is saying, honey, relax. It's okay. It's all right. You had me at hello. If we could just get that, the first inklings of that, everything changes. 
This is what Jesus wants us to understand. This is what Jesus wants us to experience. And this is what we're trying to show ourselves and each other that is available to us in God's love. Let's pray. Father, thank you is just not enough. In the face of all of this, in the face of who you are, in the face of your love, the only way we can really express our gratitude is to accept your gift. Help us to do that. Help us to move past the fear that keeps us apart from each other, working to be different than each other, and just allow ourselves to melt into this ocean of your love. Help us to be one more beloved, same as every other beloved, and find out how much freedom is in that space, how much we can relax and rest in that space. Thank you for everything that you've given us, Lord, to help us to see what is really there. Give us the desire that we need to overcome whatever it takes to move into a new place with you. And Father, we do love you as best we can every single day. And we pray that that best will be better every single day as we move closer to you. Thank you, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.